This episode is sponsored by Airbnb. The focus of season three is all about how art and creativity can be used to bring about social change, combating racism, discrimination, and ultimately finding beauty through justice. Airbnb's mission is to help create a world where people can belong anywhere, and they wanted to support these conversations. And throughout the season, I'll be featuring some of their actions in this space. So stay tuned for that. Okay, let's start the show. Sadiso, a musician, songwriter, producer and composer. I also teach. I'm fascinated by process, how we make what we make, why we make what we make. As a musician, I'm always learning from and inspired by other creatives, other musicians, artists, the arts itself, people. In short, life all inform the music I make. And I think that learning from others enriches not only our own art, but the arts. And why holding up the ladder? Well, because we're all trying to get somewhere and I think we build something stronger if we help each other. If we hold up the ladder rather than pull it up from under us as we climb. I'll be talking to all kinds of creatives about process, lessons learned, things that inspire us, the music we're listening to, what makes us who we are and the help we've had along the way. So join me as we climb, holding up the ladder. Very few, if any, people have any kind of, you know, even a 30-minute class on thinking about buildings and architecture and what it is and that these things are at some point designed by people, for people, um, and have been changed and modified by people, for people, with certain intentions. And that sounds sort of blindingly obvious, but I think it's easy to forget it when we're surrounded by buildings and these things which are designed for certain reasons. I'm surrounded by them all day, every day, and they shape how we live and uh, how we relate to each other and the quality of our lives. What do you think of when you think of shelter? Have you even thought about what it means or what it's meant to do? Is it just something that provides immediate protection from the elements? And what about architecture? Is architecture about buildings that we find aesthetically pleasing or not? And is there a difference between the two? These are questions that I'd never really considered until I spoke with my guest today, architect, academic and award-winning filmmaker, Dr. Mark Breeze. A building, which is something we inhabit, but also a building which is part of a context, part of a community. It's not just sort of floating in space, it's somewhere. It's around, as it an environmental relationship with nature, it has a relationship to movement in a city or in, a, in the countryside, it has a relationship to existing infrastructures, you know, all these complex things as a political relationship, an economic, a social, cultural relationship. Dr. Mark Breeze is a Harvard-trained licensed architect and a Cambridge-based academic who completed his postdoctoral research at the University of Oxford Refugee Studies Centre. His design, research, teaching and creative practice explores the theories and practices of sustainable shelter. And one of the ways he does this is through his design research collaborative, Spatial Realities. He is also board director of the American Institute of Architects. To read Mark's full bio, head to the link in the podcast blurb. 
We talk about the role of architecture and how much it impacts our daily lives. For example, did you know that architecture is responsible for 40% of the world's CO2 emissions? Talking to Mark, I realised that architecture isn't really about buildings, but about creating space that allows for the intangible things, care, safety, privacy, collaboration, our culturally specific needs, not just about bricks and mortar. Architecture has to be for all of us, you know, it has to work for people who live around it, as well as those who who live or work in in it, um, as well as the obviously sort of bigger picture environmental impacts of it. The United Nations High Commission for Refugees reported that at the end of 2020, 82.4 million people worldwide were forcibly displaced. The UNHCR does break down this figure into people who are internally displaced, asylum seekers, refugees that come under their mandate, but it's a lot of people who aren't in their own homes. Which gets us talking about the importance of shelter and the work that Mark does in this area. We talk about his documentary film, Shelter Without Shelter, the closing film at London's Architecture Festival in June of this year. A film that looked at the range of sheltering responses after the 2015 surge in migrants out of Syria, which again leads us to the question of what is shelter? And as Mark says, what is it supposed to do? How do you classify safety in a way that's culturally and socially specific? How do you classify privacy uh, in a socially, culturally specific way? Uh, You know, if there's certain also gender divisions, uh, how do you how do you you define community? How do you define, you know, that ability to sort of build community and socialize? Uh, How do you define these sort of healthy elements? You know, at what point is it is it unhealthy and healthy? Uh, You know, that ability to control how you cook, how you eat and to build a life. For example, have you ever thought about the uses of tarpaulin? It works as a short-term solution, but how does it work at keeping a space cool and ventilated or keeping a space dry? You know, many of these um, temporary solutions come with a tarpaulin floor. And a tarpaulin is one of the most amazing materials when you're you know, trying to find shelter. You can drape it, you can put it between things, you can put it on a surface. But then has water on it, it then, you know, it's it's not really a floor you can easily sit on and use in that way, it can get punctured. Uh, it doesn't really provide warmth. Um, so, you know, just having a, thinking about how you can have a kind of more sealed, insulated flooring. And so some interesting developments in that. Talking with Mark reminded me why I love doing this podcast and why I love processes not only because I was exposed to something new, but I was exposed to a new way of thinking. And in it all, we do talk about music. Dr. Mark Breeze, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me, Matsy. It's a real pleasure to be here with you. And thanks for the invite. Yeah. So um, you're like, you have so many qualifications. I'm going to just, um, just do an overview, like Harvard trained licensed architect, uh, Cambridge-based academic, did your postdoc research at the University of Oxford Re- uh, Refugee Study Centre. You are a board director for the American Institute of Architects. You formed as collaborative design, research practice, spatial realities. You're founding chair of the Sustainable Shelter Group. You make films. When do you have time to sleep? <laughs> well, it's very kind of you. I'll have to... Um... Speak with you more often, I think, and have 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 you uh, on a rec- recorded loop to uh, give me daily boosts. Uh, 
That's very very generous of you, Mansi. I mean, they're all they're all um, I think parts of the same work that I am doing and have been doing for several years now. So um, maybe it's all just sort of smoke and mirrors. But yeah, and I've been very lucky. I think it's they've all come out of collaborations with other people. They're certainly not my own achievements. It's very much part of a process and working with others. Um, yeah, and I, I think they're all very much connected. So they might sound like a sort of splatter gun of um, different <laughs> things, but they they really come out of a, a very sort of singular interest in in architecture, essentially, and sort of different forms of that. You know, there's the for, for me, documentary film is very connected to that, uh, and refugee shelter work is extremely connected to that, and ways of sort of um, doing and getting this re- research out is through writing, through giving talks, through making films, um, and also through teaching. And I think, you know, the teaching is also incredibly reviving and keeps you very fresh as well um, and engaged and hopefully a bit more contemporary as we all sort of age into the distance. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, no, it's a very generous introduction, but um, yeah, it sounds sounds a bit ridiculous. <laughs> uh, well, I just I just read your bio, and that's what it says. You know, I'm not I'm not I'm not making stuff up. But I I, I always like to just get a sense of how people come to the the place that they're in. Um, how do you get to this place of your practice, having this emphasis on sustainable shelter and integrated sustainability? To be honest, I'd never heard of it until I heard about you. Um. I, I suppose I, as for people that aren't architects, people like me, architecture has this very romantic side to it, maybe because of um, like Tom Selleck and three men and a baby. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, there are lots of very complimentary depictions in film of uh, architects. If yeah, only we could very... live those lives. Yeah. Well, maybe not <laughs> yeah. Tom Selleck's one, but yeah. <laughs> so I'm always like, so so tell me, how do you get to this place where you want to study architecture and then you sort of tailor it to this space of sustainable shelter and integrated sustainability? Yeah, I mean, well, I think to start with, you know, for me, architecture really doesn't incorporate, include everything, you know, it shapes how we live, it shapes um, uh, how we engage with each other. You know, it obviously gives us protection from the elements, it shapes our culture, it shapes how we socialise, it shapes our work, it shapes every aspect of our lives. Uh, and it has done since you know time immemorial. So, in, in in some ways, the annoying answer is you know architecture kind of engages with everything. So it's mm-hmm. it's sort of strategically sort of engaging with different aspects of that, which I think are very connected. Um, I mean, the word sustainability, I think we have to be quite careful of, and I, I'm I'm always hesitant to use it, but I do use it because in particularly in this day and age, it can come to mean everything and nothing, Yeah, uh, which, which is a bit of a risk. Uh, but I think generally, you know, it, it has these sort of two sides to it. One is obviously this is the, the sort of environmental side, which I can talk a bit about, which is obviously very important. Then also just the kind of more human side of sort of social sustainability, cultural sustainability, the ability we have to sort of express ourselves um, uh, find contentment, find peace, uh, to live meaningful, hopefully fulfilling lives uh, through, you know, working and living together, um, forming communities and being engaged in in society and culture. Uh, so, 
Yeah, I mean, the uninitiated architecture is 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 seemingly very abstract and hard to penetrate. And I think part of the problem is that you know no one really has any education in architecture unless they choose to study it. Certainly, mm. in the UK as a dedicated subject. You know, everyone has an art class at some point in their life and plays and, and does sort of art in some form from a young age. But very few, if any, people have any kind of you know even a thirty minute class on thinking about buildings and architecture and what it is and that these things are at some point designed by people for people um, and have been changed and modified by people for people with certain intentions. And that sounds sort of blindingly obvious, but I think it's easy to forget it when we're surrounded by buildings and these things which are designed for certain reasons. Um, I'm surrounded by them all all day, every day, and they shape how we live and uh, how we relate to each other and the quality of our lives. Um, and importantly, you know, our, our engagement with the environment. Um, and so, you know, on the environmental side, I think it's, you know, a lot of people I think won't be really be so conscious of the massive environmental impact that architecture has. You know, it's responsible for 40% of the world's CO2 emissions. If you wow. take into account, you know, the whole equation from the mining of the materials, the transport of the materials, the building of the building, and then the running of the, the energy required to run the building. So, you know, it's something that has a massive impact, uh, environmental impact on our world, our natural world. And so we really have to be very thoughtful about when we build, when we choose to rebuild, when we choose to demolish, how we build, where we get those materials from, and the lifetime of the building and, you know, the energy required to keep that building running, the resources required to keep that building running. Um, and, And obviously... Underlying that, it also has to be, you know, a healthy environment, which is which is positive and uplifting and does as much as for us as humans and also non-humans, I think, um, and how that works, not only as a building, which is something we inhabit, but also a building which is part of a context, part of a community. Um, it's not just sort of floating in space. It's somewhere. It's around as an environmental relationship with nature. It has a relationship to movement in a city or in a in the countryside. It has a relationship to existing infrastructures. You know, all these complex things. It has a political relationship, an economic, a social, cultural relationship. So, you know, architecture is this. As an architect, you're you're a kind of integrator in some ways, and a sort of strategic compromiser. Um, trying to balance all these various inputs, pulls and pushes. Um, you know, when you're, when you're actually working on a project, you obviously have a client who also has a budget. You have to work within the legal regulations, uh, the, the, the requirements of the site, the planning regulations, the existing issues on the site, um, the needs of all the various parties. So, so it's really is a sort of strategic compromise. And, you know, that's, that's very positive. You know, that's, that's the role of design to find meaningful solutions amongst all these potential contradictions. You know, otherwise we're just sort of creating art, I think, in some ways. Um, so, yeah, it's a, it's a kind of crazy profession, but I encourage everybody to, uh, <laughs> to learn more about it and to, to, to be really engaged in it. Because I think the problem is, it can easily become very sort of esoteric and, you know, this, this socially elitist um, activity because it's a long training. You know, it takes a long time to become an architect. In the, in the UK, it's an average of seven, eight years. 
to actually be a licensed architect. And it's not certainly not a high paid profession uh, unless you hit the big time and <laughs> in certain ways. I mean, it's so I think, you know, it requires a certain commitment, but I think it importantly requires every one of us to, to, to think about it and engage in it and, you know, ask why is this how it is and be engaged in however boring it might sound like planning processes and have opinions and, and express those because architecture has to be for all of us, you know, it has to work for people who live around it as well as those who, who live work in, in it, um, as well as the obviously the sort of bigger picture environmental impacts of it. Great. So I want to talk to you a little bit about shelter because I had never thought about it until, well, in the context in which you talk about it, until I read the extract from your book, Towards Better Shelter, Rethinking Humanitarian Sheltering. Um, I I guess because of everything that's going on in the world at the moment, which every it just feels unrelenting, I wanted to do this, this season of the podcast. The theme is really about how creative ways to look at social change and anti-racist stuff and things like that. And, and your work in shelter, it's just really interesting. So let, let's start from the beginning for those who don't know about it. Cause like I said, I'd never thought of it separate to housing. So what is it? And when we talk about shelter, what are we talking about and why is it different to housing? It's a very good question. I mean, it's a very complicated question. Yeah. I, um, I mean, maybe it helps to think in terms of um, refugee shelter to start with, where you're thinking, um, or even, you know, emergency temporary shelter. So if you think of um, a natural disaster, for example, or a humanitarian disaster, where you've suddenly got an awful lot of people who no longer have anywhere to protect themselves from the elements, you know, what they would have thought of as home or their place of protection, somewhere to sleep, somewhere to cook, eat, study, work. Uh, is gone. So if you think in those very basic elements of, you know, they need protection, they need somewhere to just survive a few nights, you know, it takes you down to thinking, okay, you need to protect yourself from the elements, but is that enough? Um, so the normal, you know, humanitarian response, very understandably for a, something like a natural disaster, will, I mean, it can take many sort of nuances, but it's just, you know, provide immediate protection from the elements. And that can be things like the UNHCR, so the UN High Commission for Refugees, so-called family tents, you know, which they keep in stockpiles in various locations in the world. And it's easy to distribute, put up, and you've got some protection from the elements. The other sort of different types of solutions to that, the idea is to get something up quickly that just protects you. Um, and what's so that's completely understandable. You're like, great, you know, you can survive the night, survive a few nights, um, done. But then, you know, you quickly get into issues of, well, you know, important considerations of, well, what does actually shelter need to do? You know, you need somewhere to cook, to feed yourself, or how are you being fed? Uh, you need somewhere where you can uh, study potentially or just rest. Um, do you also need somewhere where you can somehow get access to work? Or do you work in the shelter or near the shelter? Uh, what about your community? Uh, where do you socialize as a community? How do you socialize as a community? 
um, does it actually provide protection from the elements so you can stay warm enough or you can stay cool enough um, so you have healthy air, um, but you also have you know, enough light uh, and access to light? Um, is it somewhere where you know, it's, it's quiet enough that you can sleep? Is it also somewhere you know, quiet enough that you can just have some time out? Importantly, is it somewhere that's safe, that you feel safe and you have some moments of privacy um, so you're not going to uh, already, you know, already being traumatized, potentially, you're able to find some sanctity, uh, safety and protection. So there's many, you know, it has to do many, many different things. And a big challenge arises when you have to move from that initial immediate sort of temporary emergency solution to what's next. Um, so it takes many forms. I mean, most, most migrants, refugees are not in refugee camps. Uh, you know, they, they find shelter with, uh, friends or family, uh, extended friends or family and cities in rural conditions, or they might sort of construct very informal shelters. Uh, you know, the range is, is, is very big and obviously depends also on what support is given in that particular situation, given where it is in the world, what other charities, non-governmental organizations, governmental support is available. But it comes to this really kind of interesting question in that sort of middle period to then more permanent rehousing that really for me questions, you know, what is shelter? What does it need to do? Because more often than not, you know, it's, it's for quite understandable reasons treated as a very much a sort of engineering, you might call it sort of an engineering mentality in a very positive sense. You know, here are the problems, it's a list. And we can tick them off and you have a solution. It's something that's very tangible, very measurable, very rational. And you can say, yeah, job done. Great. Okay. Shelter. You've got it. But, you know, the the issue is that that there are many less tangible elements in in being human and in living. You know, uh, that ability to socialize, the ability for community, you know, uh, the realities of actually um, making sure you remain healthy, that you have the ability to access um, some kind of meaningful engagement or work, Um, you know, very complicated issues, which are tied in with a lot of policy issues, uh, legal issues, um, particularly if you're claiming asylum and such. Um, But these elements of, you know, safe space, how how do you classify safety in a way that's culturally and socially specific? How do you classify privacy uh, in a socially, culturally specific way? Uh, you know, if there's certain also gender divisions. Uh, how, do you, how, do you, how do you define community? How do you define, you know, that ability to sort of build community and socialize? Uh, how do you define these sort of healthy elements? You know, at what point is it, is it unhealthy and healthy? Uh, you know, that ability to control how you cook, how you eat, and to build a life. Uh, so, and for me, I think, you know, that really engages architecture and the skills that we spend many years and uh, learning and working in practice to obtain a kind of professional qualification to think about these more nuanced issues um, and to integrate all those different inputs and potentially, you know, strategically compromise to, to find a, a way that is a, a way forward that, you know, really fundamentally questions what does shelter need to do uh, mm-hmm. and how you know and it's it's never going to be perfect of course but um 
I think architects really have a role to play within that process to help individuals, help uh, people on the ground uh, navigate uh, meaningful solutions to that. It's a very, very complicated topic. So I, I'm, I realize I'm, you know, having to summarize um, things which, you know, there's a lot of nuance in and there's a lot of incredible work done by the non-governmental organizations, um, you know, international and local. And, um, you know, that's certainly not to be undervalued, but I think there's, there is a role, uh, there's, a, there's a bigger role for architects sort of strategic thinking within that. Because ultimately, you know, shelter is the essence of, of, of architecture, you know, providing shelter. And uh, I think, you know, it's, it's, it's peculiar that architects are not more engaged in it. And I understand why, because it, you can't copy paste the, the sort of professional architectural process onto these sort of humanitarian situations, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, have very tight schedules, very tight budgets, very, you know, very significant resourcing issues. Um, uh, and there's a real urgency to them where, you know, that, that architect, traditional architectural process just won't work in that. Yeah. I think there's definitely a role for architectural thinking and those architectural approaches in, in working, collaborating with, you know, mm-hmm. people on the ground and these organizations which have a huge experience in all the logis- logistics and and how to provide and enable opportunities for, mm. for people. This season, you've been hearing stories of people who are using their art and or creativity to respond to social issues. And oftentimes the response or act of resistance is in the making. It's the giving voice to the creating opportunity and space for And the beauty of creativity is that it's catalytic in many ways. It inspires others to respond. And this was the case with Shell, a host on Airbnb who opened up her home to people impacted by Hurricane Sandy that hit New York in 2012. Her generosity sparked a movement and marked the beginning of a programme that allows hosts on Airbnb to provide stays for people in times of need. Since then, the programme has evolved to focus on emergency response and to help provide stays to evacuees, relief workers, refugees, asylum seekers, and most recently, frontline workers fighting the spread of COVID-19. Today, that work continues under Airbnb.org, a non-profit that connects people with places to stay during times of crisis. From Australia to France, more than 100,000 hosts have offered to open up their homes and help provide accommodation to 75,000 people in times of need. You know, the concept of a right to housing is important enough to be protected by international law. Article 25 of the United Nations Declaration of Human Rights talks about protecting a right to housing, whereby, I quote, everyone has the right to a standard of living adequate for the health and well-being of himself and of his family, including food, clothing, housing and medical care and necessary social services and the right to security in the event of unemployment, sickness, disability, widowhood, old age or other lack of livelihood in circumstances beyond his control. Psychologist Maslow talked about a hierarchy of needs, shelter being integral to our basic physiological needs like food, air and water. There are so many factors that are causing people to be displaced or lose shelter and housing. 
war, natural disasters, ethnic cleansing, unemployment, and then add a pandemic to that. But one host on Airbnb, if you like, holds up the ladder for her community and it inspires and shapes how an organisation not only conducts its business, but also how it engages with the communities around it to create a global network of partnerships. To find out more, head to airbnb.org or click the link in the podcast blurb. I'm listening to you talk and a couple of things come to mind. In in the paper, well, the book that you wrote, you talk about sort of the the impact of not integrating art, architectural thinking in some of these buildings. So the panel's not tightly joining, so you get loads of insects in, in a building or it can be boiling in the day and really cold at night or lack of, you know, disabled access and all of these kind of things that perhaps, I mean, I suppose, and even you, I will get onto your film that you made, um, Shelter Without Shelter, but just this idea that something that work, that might work for a few months, you don't want to live in it for months, for years and years and years. And often these people are living in these build, well, buildings, I say in inverted commas, for years and just the impact that has. Um, yeah, and just even what you're talking about, about building community and building a life and how do you do that when that's how you're living, you know? Yeah, exactly. And I think um, you know, a lot of the, the solutions are understandably extremely practical because you have to have issues of you know being able to assemble it quickly, being able to get it to the relevant site quickly. Um, so... There are a lot of challenging inputs in, in making an, an effective shelter, but I think that the risk is that sometimes, or perhaps often, you know, these small differences, small, small, what I'd say are design issues can make a massive difference mm. on the ground. You know, there's this, for example, you know, having, having a kind of floor, you know, which, you know, many of these, um, Temporary solutions come with a tarpaulin floor, and a tarpaulin is one of the most amazing materials when you're, you know, trying to find shelter. You can drape it, you can put it between things, you can put it on a surface, but then has water on it. It then, you know, it's it's not really a floor you can easily sit on and use in that way. It can get punctured. Uh, it doesn't really provide warmth. Um, so, you know, just having a thinking about how you can have a kind of more sealed, insulated flooring. And so there's some interesting developments in that. Um, you know, thinking about the access to, to light and air, you know, does it, is it that you have to, you know, you, 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 in order to get light, you also have to have air. You know, how do you, how do you, how do you have that? How do you control that? Um, how can you control a sense of, just a little sense of privacy in it? How can you have somewhere to sit, you know? Um, these simple things that, that, you know, I think are design issues that are small things that can make a huge difference. Mm -hmm. And it's funny because when I was reading your the extract and just watching some of your film, I kept thinking about when I was doing, when I was studying law, I did this master's on sort of human rights law. But I remember reading this, this Indian Supreme Court judgment, and they were talking about, you know, everybody has the right to life, but we also, within the concept of the right to life, is a right to a quality of life. Yeah. It's not just existing. 
And um, you say somewhere that, you know, part of it's not just about pro providing basic protection from the elements, but you say enabling life to thrive. And I'm just sort of thinking about it in the time that we're in and people that aren't architects, but people who are just, you know, like me, we're just we're just people living our lives. How do we how do we become part of this thing of really being aware I'm just, I guess what I'm sort of, I'm rambling, but I'm just, I'm very aware that all our lives affect each other. And, and, and the world, particularly at the moment, I feel like we can't deny that's a reality that just because I don't know, I live in a house, it doesn't, there is, there is, I guess, a civic global sense of a global human community and that, that how I live my life does impact somebody else. Do you know what I mean? And how do we how do we think about shelter within this context that my life affects yours and vice versa? Um, yeah, I feel like I'm rambling, but maybe you can sort of not rambling half as much as me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, maybe maybe one way to talk about that is through this very interesting example came across in the in the in the research we're doing and looking at. Um, migrant shelter across Europe and the Middle East. This fantastic project in Vienna, where for a range of sort of historical reasons, they built an awful lot of office buildings in the 1980s in Vienna. So when they had a, a, a real influx of a lot of refugees post 2015 from the so-called sort of, you know, summer of migration from Syria, um, they were housing them in uh, office buildings, which you can imagine a you know, not really set up for living, you know, even sort of toilet facilities, wash facilities, and then you get into sort of fire regulations and let alone actually, you know, cooking, eating, um, food serving, you know, all these other issues. Um, so this uh, local significant charity, Caritas, um, uh, worked with the several different architects and design firms to say, you know, well, how can we make this better? How can we actually bring some design here um, to just make it more human and to make it somewhere where people can begin to sort of have control over their lives. And it's so important in that sense of just a moment of control in your life at any point, but particularly in those sort of situations. And so the, and the solutions that came out, you know, really showed the power of design at very, very little cost and the massive sort of positive impacts of that. Um, one, of the, one of the most, I think, impactful of them. I mean, there were some really, really interesting solutions from, you know, just taking old uh, garden umbrellas and um, some, uh, what it was exactly a sort of, I think they, they worked with some of the, the, the refugees who were knitting as well to create sort of hangings as well. But through creating these, these, these umbrella-like objects with hangings, you could kind of create kind of little private areas where you could just, you know, be with your kid or you could have some privacy or you could enclose your bed a bit. Uh, you could just have your own stuff in your own corner or have a kind of more private conversation with someone. Small things like that. Um, another fantastic example was by this uh, design, um, actually furniture designers mostly, uh, called AOS Design. And what they did was they they got together these workshops, um, wood shops. They they bought some basic sort of uh, wood woodwork machinery and uh, managed to get donations of offcuts of wood from concrete 
boarding. So when you pour concrete, you know, you tend to put this sort of wood shuttering, pour the concrete, and then take the wood shuttering off. Mm-hmm. And they were just discarding this wood, and they're like, yeah, you, know, you can have this, you know, use it. And so they created these, uh, what they called social furniture workshops, which was, you know, an amazing undertaking because it meant that people could not only get out and do something very practical, learn new skills or use skills they already had. They got to meet other refugees and migrants. But, you know, significantly, because the AOS, this, this furniture design firm, you know, created this sort of manual of, you know, how to make a simple chair, simple table, simple stool, a simple side um, table or a little cabinet. They, they could make these um, bits of furniture which could have a huge impact on day-to-day life for migrants, whether they're in temporary housing or even when they get um, asylum and actually have somewhere to live. Because in the, in the Viennese context, you, you know, if you, if you get asylum and you're allocated somewhere to live, it doesn't come with furniture. So you just have an empty, right. sort of an empty flat. So suddenly being able to, you know, not only in your temporary housing, have a chair to sit on, a table to eat at, with friends or family or with just other, other people in a similar situation or somewhere just to store your few belongings, you know, is transformative. Those small details make a massive difference, but also enabled them to sort of feel they're helping themselves, helping each other, uh, you know, and there's huge demand outside of the refugee migrant community for them. But I mean, that process where you can, you know, people could get out and work together and be in a different situation, be in a different environment, meet other people, as well as the benefits of the actual things produced. You know, a wonderful, wonderful project. and really shows the power of, and the importance of community, the power and importance of collaboration and the mm. and really significant role that strategic design can play. You know, tiny differences make a huge impact on people's quality of life and their ability mm. to rebuild their lives. I'm, I'm listening to you and thinking, you know, I, it's funny because I'm reminded I, I was in Haiti just after the earthquake. And I also went to, um, well, remember they called it the jungle in Calais? Yeah. And just seeing how people, I don't know, people, I suppose humans are very, very, very resourceful when you have to be. But just just the what happens when you don't have adequate shelter, like where we were, because I was with a Haitian friend. When we were in Haiti, I was with a Haitian friend and we were out of Port-au-Prince. We were in the rural areas. And just things like, women that were eight months pregnant and like, we're going to have to give birth here and just thinking, how, how are they going to do that? And yeah, it's just, like I said, I think it's just, just realizing how important shelter is and, and the stuff that you're doing is making me think about housing and shelter and all these things in a way that I'd never thought about before and how things that I guess we take for granted, if you have it, you're like, these are really, really serious things, you know, n- not having proper clean water or just because when we were in Haiti, like when it rained and just what that does when it rains and, and the impact and then cholera and all of these things that happen is, yeah. But let's talk about your film, Shelter Without Shelter, um, where it's like a, which is I what I also find really interesting is this sort of intersection between filmmaking and architecture and the stuff that you're doing around that but you made the six part documentary about forced migrants and how they sheltered you know across europe you mentioned the vienna example but i know there was people in uh, people in athens and so so tell me about this film how you came to make it and what's happening with it 
Yeah, so I mean, it was it was part of our research project, um, which was looking at um, the the range of uh, migrant sheltering responses across Europe and the Middle East um, from the sort of summer of 2015, when there was this real sort of surge in migrants coming out of um, Syria, and so there, were, there was a sudden urgency to create an awful lot of shelter very quickly across Europe and the Middle East. Uh, so initially, we you know. I, I work in documentary film as, as part of my sort of practice. Uh, so we, we knew we wanted to kind of use film as a way of uh, getting this the, this research and some of the sort of arguments out there because we're conscious that, you know, academia can be quite inward looking at times. And, you know, the products of a lot of academic research is academic papers that are run by other academics and perhaps aren't always the most lively, easily accessible reads. Mm. So it sort of started as as part of that process of thinking, how can we actually convey this research as we're doing it? But it quickly became a kind of form of research as well, I think, which surprised both me and my colleague Tom, uh, who's based at the Refugee Study Centre at Oxford. Mm. And we we soon realised it was it was taking on a kind of very central role in the project. It was very much the process of doing the research through making the film. Um, was extremely interesting and extremely helpful for us in, um, in how we were thinking about what we were seeing, but also in, um, in enabling, I think, a broader array of people to, to talk about their experiences um, and to have those documented. The idea was to look at the, cat, the, sort of, the full range of categories from the sort of different governmental solution or different solutions that happened in different countries. So, for example, in Jordan, they had sort of more mega camp solution, sort of huge refugee camps of Azraq and, um, well, first it was Zatri uh, and then Azraq, which was after that, um, which if you sort of picture in your mind's eye a refugee camp, that's kind of how, how they are. Mm-hmm. And then in Lebanon, where it was very much sort of informal sheltering, the complex politics there, um, the complex histories of Lebanon means that, you know, no sort of formal sort of refugee camps are allowed and very kind of complicated, nuanced situation of how you can uh, enable refugees to find and have shelter whilst you can't. I mean, I think it was after January 2017, they weren't allowed to officially be registered as a refugee. So, you know, a lot of complex situations there. Mm. Um, And so how, how sheltering was created and found when it had to be very informal by nature, you know, whether it's through squatting or whether it's through, you know, building your own sort of shelter in certain situations uh, or, or finding um, a shelter with, with friends and family. So then, you know, at the entry point of Europe, which was often Greece, looking at some of the solutions there, we're particularly into, interested in the squats, which have existed for a long time in, in Athens and were extremely welcoming to refugees uh, just because you know that's part of their ethos against the ownership of private property, um, uh, and you know provided some some really incredible sort of solutions in many ways, or or some some opportunities for communal sheltering in Athens. I mean, certainly not without their problems. Um, and at the same time, you know, the the Greek government was uh, creating a lot of more formal refugee. Uh, I think well, calling them camps is maybe a bit much, but you know these sort of structured refugee shelters in old, particularly in old naval areas, naval yards around Greece, which were normally in sort of peri-urban 
outside the cities, whereas the squats were in in, in Athens. Um, so looking at that, and then all the way to um, solutions in France or Germany. Uh, you know, so in Germany there was um, we, we ended up being particularly focused in Berlin, where there was a lot of reuse of existing infrastructure, existing buildings, whether it was you know housing refugees and uh, the formerly closed down um, international conference center. Um, or in the former airport, uh, in the central in Tempelhof Airport in Berlin, um, to old cigar factories, to the former um, Secret Service headquarters in East Berlin, you know, incredible range of buildings, which they were just very understandably, they had that space, you know, they needed to shelter people quickly. Um, so, you know, how do they do that? And we were very interested in the... I mean, obviously, we were talking to a lot of refugees and migrants um, through their journeys and their experiences in these buildings. But we were we were also particularly interested to hear, you know, from the other side of the equation, the people providing that shelter. You know, what are the challenges they're facing? Why are they providing what they're providing? How do they negotiate these complex um, issues? Um, what are their kind of critiques of what they're doing? Um, and, you know, why is it the way it is? And what do they see as the future of this? How could it be different? I think that's often a story that isn't told because there's a lot of people doing incredible work, you know, trying to do the best with very limited resources and complex situations. Um, but again, I think for me, it's a biased architect. I think, you know, there's, there's still a need for more architectural thinking and more mm. architectural input in that um, to, to make it work better for people. Because mm-hmm. ultimately it's about sheltering people and enabling them to get back on their feet and rebuild their lives and rebuild communities. And so this this you did over three years from 2015. So you finished around 2018. So where are we now with it? And are there any updates have things changed? Because, yeah, it's about, what well, if you finish in 2018, you've had about three years since you... You mean with the film? Yeah, and just even with the people that you were filming and the organisations that you, you know, you connected with. Yeah, I mean, it's it's funny now because the film is, in some ways, a kind of historical document. You know, a lot of these, these shelters don't exist anymore. Right. Um... You know, a lot of people have been granted asylum. Uh, the situation's changed quite a lot on the ground. I mean, obviously, there are an awful lot of refugees and, and very challenging situations still, but particularly in the last year and a half with our global sort of lockdowns, there's a, there's a sort of pause on a lot of migration, but it's certainly not going to go away. It's an issue that's only going to get more significant, particularly with climate change and um challenges that that presents, um, let alone the kind of political uh, challenges that, and, and economic and social challenges that you know, cause a lot of people to understandably flee from where they are. Um, so, yeah, the situation's changed on the ground, but I think that that's what's exciting about the film is that it keeps, you know, I think it has that historical element now, but still a lot of the debates and discussions in it are, are very, very pertinent now, very relevant still. Um, and then, yeah, we're trying to work out the best way to for it to get as wide an audience as possible. I mean, that's that's our, our number one aim and motivation is just getting it out there, and as, so as many people as possible can see it and 
engage with it and it can help hopefully think through some issues and um, help people kind of think around some of the complexities of this. And we certainly don't have all the answers in any way at all, but I think the more people who can be engaged in the discussion uh, from as many perspectives as possible is, is, is very positive. Mm, Definitely. And, you know, you, you say something very interesting about film that I think is really, really true. Um, the transformative power in film enabling us to, quote, rethink, revitalise and reconstruct the worlds we inhabit. And I think, you know, to have something like this that people might not think about in... in a, Well, it's not that they necessarily don't think about, but you're presenting it in a certain way. It's causing us to sort of rethink how we engage with with the world around us and and people around us and I should say you know my dad was a political refugee and so he traveled um because he was involved in politics in South Africa and he traveled all the way up the African continent until he reached his country and he was in refugee camps and it was really interesting for me when I was in some of these refugee camps thinking gosh my dad would have been doing this similar kind of thing and how was it like for him? And, you know, he doesn't really talk about it that much for obvious reasons. But I think, gosh, you know, he was here. And I remember meeting or the equivalent, you know, to what I saw. And I remember meeting like some Syrians who were like, you know, I really want to train as an economist. And that's what my dad does. And it was just this really weird it's it's this thing of not removing ourselves from people, but actually finding things that we connect with. And it was just a very kind of surreal experience for me. But um, I like to ask my guests what lessons they have learned that we can learn from. But I want to ask you that within the context, obviously, of your work. But you talked about building community and people building a life. And I'm just thinking about how from what you have, you know, what you've been doing, what you've been researching, what you've experienced, what you've seen, how do you, what have you learned in terms of how communities can be built and how lives can be built within the context of all of the stuff you've done? I'll give you some time to think about it because I realise it's like... Nice, nice small question there. Mate. Yeah. <laughs> no pressure for the life, the universe and everything. Um, yeah, I mean, I think... In, in the end, it comes down to quite simple, simple things, you know, remembering that, you know, these are people, these are humans with their own lives, skills, histories, uh, concerns, cares, worries. Um, and I think it's easy, particularly given more media portrayals that, you know, which are often not that positive at all, that, you know, to, to sort of dehumanize people in these situations, which is which is obviously a disastrous outcome. I mean, there's a lot of, as I said, there's a lot of incredibly dedicated people working in, in this area, trying to, you know, do the best they can with very limited resources to, to help migrants in all forms. And that's fantastic work. But I think from the, the things that really struck me, you know, quite obvious things in a way, but, you know, just remembering the importance of, you know, care and engagement and really trying to help people in as many ways as possible on on their terms. You know, I think it's easy to try and impose solutions and and I think certainly architects might be more guilty of that than others potentially at times. Um, But, you know, it's very much about a collaboration about, you know, in the architectural context of 
us using our skills to help people realize what they need, given the limited resources. Um, and I think, you know, that essence of engagement with, with people is, is, cannot be underestimated, that the importance of care um, and the importance of, you know, collaboration and that small things can make a huge difference. You know, it's not about finding some magical solution. You know, the context is so complicated. Uh, there's so many limits on what can be done and what can't be done for a whole range of different reasons. Uh, there's so many conflicting needs as well, and you know, a lot of urgent priorities. But you know, I think it's about working with people in those situations, working with local communities, um, and enabling people to take control of their lives again and start to have a sense of being able to build their own future, um, to have some control, to you know, to gain dignity through being able to build their own lives and build those communities. And, you know, I think that's something every every one of us can do in different ways and probably does do every day, you know, and how we interact with each other, things we support and are interested in, things we talk about. I think, you know, that's really important that these things are discussed and, you know, we're all people. We're, we all have similar human needs. It's true. It's true. So... You do all the myriad of things you do. You teach, you're on boards of things, you make films. What What's next? What are you doing now? Uh, so I, I, at the moment, I'm, I'm teaching at the Architectural Association. I teach a design studio there, working at Shelter and Forms of Domesticity, which is very, very enlivening and interesting. Um, and, I, you know, the teaching I, I find very important as well and keeps me fresh, uh, fresher. <laughs> Uh, yeah, and it's very inspiring working with the students and uh, with my colleague there, Katie Casabales, um, and helping, you know, it's really trying to think through what can architecture do, what, it, you know, and ultimately what is architecture, or, you know, what, what, what does it need to do, what can it do, what can it enable, what are its limits, what can it not do. So there's that side of my life, which you know, I think is very important and keeps me kind of engaged. Um, and then I'm trying to uh, now build more of my own kind of collaborative practice um, using my documentary filmmaking skills and my architecture skills and, and my, my research work. Um, you know, a, a different form of practice, I guess, where it's dealing with housing, it's dealing with architecture, also works in film and collaborates in all these different areas um, oriented around ideas of shelter, really. So... You know, we're looking to work on um, housing projects as well as on film projects and also keep doing research and writing um, to keep discussions and ideas floating out there and having engaged kind of debates about, you know, what, what do we need to do? What, what are we doing? What's working? What's not? Why? Um, what is the role in, of architecture in all of this? How can we, how can we together kind of help? create a more sort of sustainable, engaged, enlivening world. Um, mm. Yeah, so if anybody wants to be involved, I'd love to collaborate. It's uh, slowly getting some projects together. Uh, mm. And um, yeah, I'm excited. It should be uh, a lot of fun, hopefully. Yeah, it sounds like it. Well, you should, um, I, can, I can make some music for your spaces. I don't know how that how that works, but I'm sure like, I know a guy who does what he does music for architecture. So his 
His brother is David Ajayi. And he does the I does all this music. I don't fully know what he does, but I know he sort of incorporates music in an architectural um, context. But I can I don't know, like I can make music for your buildings so that they just have a certain soundscape when you walk in. Sound is really, you know, I think it's it's often not considered, and it's really important. You know, noise, sound, control of that, very very important. And music, obviously, is foundational for, for us as humans. So. Exactly, exactly. Well, my last question, the question I ask everybody, what music are you listening to? <laughs> I have quite an eclectic taste and it, and it um, jumps around a lot, dependent on mood and uh, context as well, I guess. I mean, the moment I'm, I'm kind of quite... And I, yeah, I should also say I tend to sort of listen to things on loop <laughs> to death and then move yeah. on. Yeah, I'm like that. Kind of, you know, odd way of working maybe. Maybe that comes in that kind of slightly obsessive, compulsive architectural mentality. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But yeah, no, at the moment I'm really, I'm, I'm really enjoying um, Candy Walls by Trust. It's a really fascinating uh, voice that the, the lead singer has and I, I just really like the rhythms and I really like the kind of feel of it but yeah I mean I jump between classical between that between bad 90s trance to like some <laughs> cheesy stuff well probably 90s trance quite cheesy but um yeah I, I'd say I have quite an eclectic taste nice nice well I I, I always ask people because well first of all because I'm a musician but second of all because I really like discovering new music and um, I like, yeah, I just, I, I think, um, you know, people should listen to what they what they like to listen to. And I've never heard of Candy Wall by Trust. Is that, is that a band or a person? Yeah, that's a band. I, I think they call themselves a band, yeah. Okay, well, I'm going to check that out. But Mark, Dr. Mark Breeze, I've had lots of doctors on this, um, like lots of PhD people on this series, so... Um, Thank you for sharing um, with us your process, why you do what you do. Um, I, I love what you say here. I'm just referring back to your article because this whole podcast is about processes. But you say that architecture does not just involve buildings or even building new objects. It is a process of transforming spaces and environments to work more effectively for its users and contexts. So thank you for giving me your time, your insight, your thoughts on things. Um, Yeah, thank you very much. Thank you so much, Matsy. And uh, yeah, I mean, I'm looking forward to building this collaborative practice. I'm sort of getting underway now, Spatial Realities. And if anybody wants to reach out, reach me at hello at spatial-realities.com. Fantastic. Uh, It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. And thank you for what you're doing. I think the podcast (laughs) is wonderful. Thank you. Thank you so much to Dr. Mark Breeze. If you want to find out more about the work he's doing with Spatial Realities, do get in touch. You can watch the trailer to his film, Shelter Without Shelter, on the film website. Sign up for the newsletter so you can watch it when it's released and follow them on Instagram. All details are in the podcast blurb. Thank you for listening. Holding Up the Ladder is available wherever you listen to podcasts. Please share, like, subscribe to the podcast, leave comments. We also want to hear from you about any initiatives, individuals or organisations you know of 
that are using the arts and creativity to champion social change. You can DM us on Twitter at HUTL underscore or Instagram holding up the ladder hashtag HUTL or email us at contacthutl at gmail.com. Thank you again to our sponsors, Airbnb. To learn more about the work they're doing and why they're supporting Holding Up the Ladder, head to the links in the podcast blurb. Next week, we resume our regular programming that was scheduled for a few weeks ago. We're talking access, representation and diversity in the music industry with writer, composer, producer, publisher and A&R manager Felix Howard. But I'm I'm actually pleasantly surprised that it's 19%. I thought it was way less still. You know, I don't I don't know that a parity is or a majority even is possible because of the way that structural racism is set up in the United Kingdom and in America and in Europe because you're dealing with forces that are much bigger than the music business. Mm-hmm. But if we're dealing with black music, which, by the way, we're all dealing with black music because mm-hmm. it's all black music, you know, mm-hmm. this music business that we're in, then you'd at least like it to be half, if not more, if not a majority. But I don't know that kids who are growing up always get presented with the opportunities that they could be in the music business. Mm-hmm. And that's a shame because we're probably, well, we're definitely missing out on some brilliant talent. Until next time.